Well, throughout the 20th century, American Christianity gained the reputation of being judgmental, very judgmental. You know, you had the advent of modernism, and so many in the church circled their wagons where they were not going to let any of the world into the church. They were going to hold the line and not compromise, and doctrinally and morally, that was the right thing to do. But over time, these lines became blurred, and issues of preference became just as dogmatic, and legalism took over. Now the church was in the business of judging people based on these issues that scripture does not address as sin. Things like dress, hobbies, music. The prominent Christian author Jerry Bridges recalls growing up during this time, in the 1950s, people dressed up to go to church. Men wore jackets and ties, women wore dresses. But in the 70s, that changed. Men started showing up with open collars and casual pants, and women started to wear pants. And so for several years, Bridges remembered being judgmental toward those people, thinking, didn't they have any reverence for God? Would they dress like that if they were going to meet with the president? That sounded convincing to him at the time, but later he realized he was wrong. There's nothing in the Bible about how to dress at church. It's a non-biblical issue. And even something like meeting the president is culturally conditioned. If you're going to meet the president at his ranch, for example, you probably would wear blue jeans. Reverence for God is not a dress issue, but a heart issue. And casual dress at church, for example, may or may not reflect a casual attitude toward God. But since you can't see the heart motives of a person, well, you should refrain from judging them. So Bridges learned to stop judging people as irreverent simply based on their dress at church. But a lot of other Christians have not learned that lesson. They've held on to legalism, which is about creating bounds of righteousness that Scripture doesn't make. So if they see another Christian having a glass of wine at dinner, they're judged. If they see a Christian with a tattoo... They're condemned and don't even start to talk about bringing new musical instruments into their churches. You know, this type of legalistic judgmentalism turned many people off from the church. And as a consequence, there was a strong reaction against such judgmental churches. Legalistic churches were shrinking and dying. And so other churches determined to go down a different road. They were going to be different. They set out to be judgment-free zones. And all those issues of culture and personal preference were erased. The new church motto became, come as you are. Right? How you look, how you dress, nothing matters, just come. And no longer was the church to be a place where the outsider was judged based on appearance. And of course, partly that's a good thing, because the church should not be legalistic, and the church should not judge newcomers and outsiders based on appearance. But over time, these lines got blurred as well. And many churches started giving up doctrinal and moral discernment out of this desire to not be judgmental. These churches were so desperate to shed the image of judgmentalism that they just kind of flung the doors wide open and accepted, well, all things without question. In many cases, this led to open sin being tolerated in the church. There's a church I'll leave unnamed. It's pastored by a husband and wife team. Their son is the worship leader. He lives behind the church in a trailer with his girlfriend. They're not married, but they're cohabitating. They're relationally involved. 
In front, I heard that the leaders aren't happy about it, but they don't want to say anything. Only God can judge. It's not their place to judge. And so they just kind of let it be. And they continue to let this young man live in sexual morality, yet be their worship leader. Makes me wonder, like, is this the best the church can do? Are we stuck between these two extremes? Because on one side is legalism, which holds people to a man-made standard of righteousness and then condemns those who fall short. And on the other side is antinomianism, which is all about, you know, throwing out any real standard of godliness and holding people accountable to right living. Is this it? We just have to choose between one of these two. I thankfully know there is a better way, a, a middle way, where both extremes are avoided. It's the way of Christ, who himself came in both grace and truth. If you have all truth and no grace, it results in a cold, dead legalism. But if you have all grace and no truth, you're, you're left with a, a boundless liberal antinomianism. But the church is meant to exist in the intersection of grace and truth. There is such a thing as truth. God has set the standard for life and godliness, and the church is called to, to, to live accordingly, to live according to his word and will. But we must do so with grace, not self-righteousness. Love must be the vehicle of the truth which we preach and proclaim and live by as we recognize that we ourselves fall short and we are merely saved by grace. All this translates into a place of balance when it comes to judgment in the church. And this morning, I want to talk to you more about this place of balance. And this message is inspired from our passage from last week, James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And if you want a refresher, you can turn now to James chapter 4. We've been going through James verse by verse. And last week, we came upon this small passage that, honestly, you probably just read right over and don't think twice about. It primarily deals with slander and speaking against others in the church, but it also incorporates this issue of judgmentalism. And there is a type of judgmentalism that Scripture forbids. Let's be reminded, read James 4, 11 and 12. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, as we learn, James is primarily writing against slander, a harsh, critical spirit that involves speaking against brothers and sisters in the church. And this is often accompanied by a self-righteous judgment of them, a condemnation. And such slander and condemnation, that's something we expect from the world for, for them to do that to us. It shouldn't be the case in the church, though. I mean, the, the church is meant to be a family of God where we, we really love one another. We, we build up one another with our words. We don't tear down. And so this is an admonition against slander that we need to heed. And this, we, we covered all this last week as we went through this passage. But something we didn't really have time to cover in detail was the, the broader issue, issue of 
judgmentalism. But I find this to be an issue that breeds confusion among Christians. I mentioned in brief, James is not forbidding Christians from exercising all types of judgment in this passage. And some might take it that way. I mean, look, James says, who are you to judge your neighbor? See right there, we we shouldn't judge anyone for anything. Only God can judge. But is that so? Because it seems like we could find plenty of verses that seem to say otherwise, where the church is outright commanded to exercise judgment and discernment over sin. For example, Jesus said, John 7, 24, he said, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. The church is even commanded to take action when a brother or sister has fallen into sin. They refuse to repent. They are to be judged in the sense of, you know, excluded, put out from the church. Christ himself taught that in Matthew 18. But that being said, there are plenty of other verses on the other side that tell us not to judge. Like Matthew 7, verse 1, where Christ said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Or Romans 14, 13, which says, let us not judge one another anymore. It kind of leaves us wondering, like, so which is it? Clearly, there are some verses like James, which prohibit a type of judgmentalism. But this is far from a contradiction in scripture. Rather, scripture is clearly speaking of two different types of judgment. But as I said, this is an issue that can easily breed confusion. I know this because I've talked to so many Christians who are confused on the matter. Like, are we supposed to judge people or not? Or how much? When? For what? Like, sometimes we're told to judge people. Sometimes we're told not to judge. Like, which is it? And if you don't really diligently search the scriptures, well, you're bound to be confused. So anyway, knowing that James here touches on such an important, broader issue of judgmentalism. Before we move forward in James, I figured we'd we'd come back and just try and provide some clarity to help you understand this issue of judgment in the church that you might judge rightly. Let's, let's just avoid both cliffs of legalism and antinomianism and just walk the narrow but clear way of the Lord by sticking to scripture. And that's, that's what we aim to do. So at the rest of our time, I want to help you understand the right and wrong place of judgment in the church. The right and the wrong place of judgment in the church. And we'll split up into two halves. Judgment outside the church, judgment inside the church. So we'll begin with this judgment outside the church. First, I want to walk you through the church's position on judging those outside the church, the world, the unbeliever. And we'll do this along four points. First, the church is not to judge unbelievers. Number one, the church is not to judge unbelievers. This is going to be obviously more of a topical message, but still plenty of scripture to go around. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you'd like to follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a key passage on judgment inside and outside the church, but we're going to be in with judging those outside the church. Paul actually wrote the Corinthians a letter before 1 Corinthians. He'd already written to them, 
We don't have that letter, but, but we can infer part of what he said. He, he kind of tells us. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, he tells him this. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So he, he, had, rent them a, he had written them a previous letter and he said, Corinthian church, don't associate with immoral people. This word for associate means to fellowship with, to keep company with. And the Corinthians received this letter and they took it to mean that the apostle was forbidding them from associating with, well, unbelievers. Because they're obviously immoral, right? So the church shunned non-Christians, condemned non-Christians. Paul gets wind of this and his response is not to applaud them, but to rebuke them. Because they had gotten it wrong and he offers now a correction. So look again in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 5. He said, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Verse 10. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. Or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For for then you would have to go out of the world. So Paul wasn't talking about unbelievers when he referenced these immoral and idolatrous people. If he was telling them not to associate with unbelievers, they would have to leave planet earth because it's just, it's not possible. But what did he mean then? Well, look at verse 11. He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So what he's saying is if someone claims to be a Christian, but they're living a double life of immorality, that's the person you are to disassociate from. That's what Paul meant. And we'll talk about that later. We'll come back to that point. But for now, what's clear is, The church is not to be doing that with the unbeliever. The church is not to harshly condemn, in that sense, judge and disassociate from the non-Christian. That's what the Corinthians were doing, but Paul says, that's not your place. And so verse 12, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So we find this is a jurisdiction issue. This word for judging refers to, plainly, sitting in judgment over someone. And think of a parent judging a child. And by that, we would mean that the parent has convicted the child of wrongdoing and then, as judge, enacts some sort of penalty or discipline or consequence. And that's appropriate. It's fully within the parent's jurisdiction to judge their child in that manner where they are bringing consequences for wrongdoing. But it is not within the church's jurisdiction to act as judge over the world. That is God's place. It's just like James says in James 4.12. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. That authority has not been delegated to the church. And so that's why Paul says, you know, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? And the answer obviously is, well, well, nothing in that regard. That is God's place. 
Now, this, this still needs more clarification, so let's add a, a second point here. Number two, the church is to warn and evangelize unbelievers. The church is to warn and evangelize unbelievers. Just to make sure you really understand me, when, when I say the church is not to judge unbelievers, I mean, it's not the church's place to sit in judgment over the lost for their wicked deeds and then dole out some punishment. Like we're, we're not that type of judge. And say you have an old friend who's not a Christian and you learn he's leaving his spouse for another woman. The church has no real recourse there. I mean, this person is acting like an unbeliever. They are an unbeliever. What do you expect? Do you expect them to abide by Christian morals? And further, the church can enact no penalty or, or consequences in that case, nor is the church called to do so. It's kind of out of our jurisdiction. And so that's, that's what we mean when we say the church is not to judge unbelievers. There's, there's nothing we can or are called to do in that case, so to speak. But that, that by no means means that the church is to sit in approval of the world's wickedness and just say nothing. That's not what we mean. The church is not forbidden from speaking out against sin. We may not be in the place of judge, jury, and executioner over the world. And so as they live in rebellion against God's ways and do evil things, there's nothing we can do to, to, to make them do otherwise or, or punish them. But even though they don't recognize God's authority, they're still under his authority as their creator, as their lawgiver and judge like James said. And so it's only right for the church to represent the word and the will of God to the world. I mean, scripture itself speaks out against sin and exposes it. And so as the church ministers the word of God in the lives of the lost, well, they're going to be warned of their sin and, and of the divine consequences. Just keep in mind, though, these conversations are meant to take place in the context of evangelism, not condemnation. It's where the truth of God's word produces conviction over sin. That's meant to lead to the good news of Jesus Christ, who's the answer to sin. And so it'd only be right for you to talk to that friend who's leaving his wife and, and share with him, like, you know, what you're doing is, is wrong. It, it's a serious sin against God. It's an affront to your holy creator. And hopefully his conscience would likewise testify that what he's doing is wrong. You don't say this just to shove it in his face and say like, see, now you're going to hell. But rather in humility, you would also add like, you know, I've incurred the guilt of sin and rebellion too. That we all have. We all have transgressed God's ways. We all stand justly condemned before this God. But, you know, I need to tell you about the good news here that, that God, this is why he sent his son Christ to die for sinners and rebels like you and like me, that Christ died, he rose again to make sinners clean and he can change you, he can forgive you, he can transform your life. You've got to repent and turn to him. See, that, that is within our jurisdiction. We, we need to be having those conversations. Now, the world might still label that as being judgmental 
Because we're making a judgment call on their actions. In that case, for example, we're calling adultery sin. And further, if you call someone to repent and believe, you are implicitly judging their whole life. Because you're essentially telling them, you're going the wrong direction. You've made all the wrong choices. You're, you're headed the wrong way. And you're, you're going to perish. You need to, you need to turn. Turn back, return to the Lord, repent, believe. Those in the world may label this as judgmentalism. But in this case, so be it. I mean, there's nothing we can do about that. In this case, we can do nothing else. We're only representing the standard of God. And we're actually loving them by warning them. I mean, did not Christ himself preach repentance Did he not convict the woman at the well of her adultery? And the Bible convicts sin. Ephesians 5.11 says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. And so there's a right place for exposing sin, for calling it what it is. This is the warning element in evangelism, and the church cannot jettison the warning element. And these warnings... They must come in love, not condemnation, but they must come. So to clarify, the church is not to judge unbelievers by holding them accountable for their deeds and dealing out punishment. That's not our place. But the church must still judge sin as sin before the world, that the lost might be convicted of their sin, that the lost might turn to Christ. They might find Christ. And that starts with that conviction over sin. Now, you still might think, okay, so if if the church, though, were not judge, jury, and executioner over the world, what do we do when their evil deeds impact us? We just sit by, like, what if they steal from us? Or murder? Like, do we just, we sit by because we're not to judge the world like that? What do we do? Well, the church is called to remember a few things. Point number three, we'll add, government will judge unbelievers. Remember, we're still talking about judgment outside the church. Government will judge unbelievers. You don't have time to turn to Romans 13, but I'll read it for you. Romans 13, verses 1 and 4. There, Paul says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. He says of government, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. What Romans 13 teaches is that God has delegated some of his authority to judge to the human institution of government. Twice, the government is called here a minister of God. It bears the sword to bring wrath on the evildoer. And largely, this is true as human governments prosecute theft, rape, murder, and and many evils. The wicked are judged, and Christians are to rely on government to judge. Now, I still know what you're thinking, namely that, you know, but wait a second. You know, human governments fall way short of that perfect standard. I mean, sometimes they are wicked and unjust themselves. 
And that's true. There's no promise that governments themselves will always be righteous or always bear the sword righteously. When you have governments that are populated by wicked sinners, I mean, watch out. Even still, the church is not called to take up the sword. That's one thing we have to remember. We're not that type of judge. We, we don't, we're not given the power of the sword. That place of judgment is not ours. And so when all else fails, we are always comforted, comforted by remembering, fourth point here, finally, God will judge unbelievers. Fourthly, lastly, God will judge unbelievers. That's what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 5. Those outside the church, he said, God will judge. If they, if they make it through this life and they don't turn to Christ, they continue in their rebellion, well, God will judge. And countless verses say the same thing, Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed for men to die once and then comes the judgment. Acts 17.31 speaks how the God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. And that is Christ himself. He will be that judge. And so the church is called to just rely on Christ, to to count on him, to, to trust him, to lay our burdens on him to judge and to make things right. We may suffer injustice in this life, but at the end of the day, we're going to trust God to right all wrongs in the end because he is that judge. And if we do suffer wrong, well, we're just going to be like Jesus during his humiliation where we're just going to suffer. And we, meanwhile, we're going to entrust our souls to our faithful creator in doing what is right. Isn't that what 1 Peter 2.23 says? It talks about Jesus and says, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly, righteously. And so we will do the same. We will just entrust our souls to God. He will judge rightly. And as 1 Peter 4, 5 says, speaking of the wicked who do persecute us, it says, well, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We don't have to worry about that. They will give an account. God will deal with all in the end. Perfect justice will be done. Christ will judge the living and the dead will make all wrongs right. And we will count on him for that. But for us, that's not our place here and now as the church. We're, we'll stick with scripture, which calls out sin, which convicts the world of unrighteousness. We'll do that in love, that they might find the joy of Christ before that time of judgment comes. So we will still speak, but we will not bear the sword. We will trust Christ to judge. Well, hopefully this helps you just at least start thinking through the church's place of judgment with those outside. We want to move on now to the second part here. Judgment inside the church. Judgment inside the church. And so we'll do the same thing this time along five points. First, the church is to judge believers. The church is to judge believers. Back at 1 Corinthians 5, in fact, if you're still there, you find this whole passage, Paul was rebuking the church for their failure to judge within. 
If you're still in 1 Corinthians 5, look back at verses 1 and 2. He starts off and says, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. You become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So what's going on is sexual immorality was being tolerated in the church. And the church, though, they, they thought they were being loving. They thought this is what they were supposed to do. Like, we, we don't judge. We're being tolerant of this person and his life choices. And they even boasted of their kindness toward this man. You know, who are they to judge, right? Wrong. The purity of the church is at stake, and Christ wants his church to be pure. And so judgment is needed here. So look at what Paul says next. Verses uh, 3 through 5. He says, For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So for the unrepentant sinner, judgment here is clear. What Paul is talking about is for this person to be removed from the assembly through church discipline. Just as the child who persists in disobedience merits discipline from the Lord. So the professing Christian who refuses to repent, merits discipline. And in this case, it is a removal from the church, where a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The church can't tolerate ongoing sin inside the camp in just an attitude of of mocking God. The unrepentant one must be removed. But even this is not done in a spirit of condemnation, but in hope of restoration. You even see that Paul's hope and and our hope is that someone would be humbled by their sin. They'd realize choosing sin is not the good choice. It is not better over there. That they would see the hardship of their ways and, and later on repent and return. There's always compassion for those who repent and return. But it's an act of responsibility and mercy for the church to judge those within like this. He says down in verse 12, again, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Nothing. But he says, do you not judge those who are within the church? Yes, we do. And we must. The person who calls himself a Christian but lives in ongoing unrepentant sin is is doing serious damage to the name of Christ in the world. And Paul, remember, he tells us not even to eat with such a one. There's a level of disassociation so as not to bring reproach or share in that reproach on the name of Christ. And so he says at the end, remove the wicked man from yourselves. Very similar to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, which says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. And not according to the tradition which you have received from us. 
So you can see there, there clearly is some place of judgment within the church. The church is called to take action and deal with sin in the camp. And granted, look, we all struggle with sin, but the church cannot be a place where sin is celebrated or tolerated. It is to be removed. And this involves a type of judgment. Now, look, this type of judgment, all that being said, it is prone to abuse. And so we must further qualify and clarify this judgment in the church. Let's add number two. This judgment is reserved for unrepentant sin. This judgment is reserved only for unrepentant sin. The church is entrusted with the very important matter of judging within the body. But this is not to deteriorate into like McCarthyism or like the Salem witch trials where everyone in the church is always on edge for fear that they might be judged for anything they do. Now, a spirit of humility pervades this judgment because we're all sinners. And so if we're to be judging each other for every sin, it will never stop. But that's not the picture. Instead, the church's judgment that we're talking about here is reserved for unrepentant sin. And let's say a young man joins the church and he's greatly struggling with lust. He knows it's wrong and he repents every time he falls, but the struggle is real And that person should not fear judgment in the church. He's humble. He's already broken over his sin. He knows it's wrong. He repents every time. He's already judged himself. And so that believer needs not judgment from the church. He needs help, encouragement, prayer, accountability, love. That's not the place for judgment. Instead, the judgment we're talking about within Pertains to the one who's just living in sin. They're living in open rebellion. They're not repenting. They, they don't care anymore. This person is not humble and broken. They're prideful and arrogant. They know what they're doing is wrong, but they just no longer care. And this is where the church's judgment comes in. It comes from Christ himself. I'll read for you Matthew 18, 15 through 17. It's where he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. And here Christ himself is advocating a personal rebuke and admonishment of a fellow believer who's caught up in sin. And that's a good thing though. That's an act of love. It, It requires a type of judgment. We have to call them out on their sin and show them fault. It's done in love to help them, to restore them. And only if that person refuses to repent, Does it go further? And so Christ says next, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And like an unruly child, the unrepentant Christian is disciplined. And here, again, the church doesn't bear the sword. So it's not like we kill the one who's unrepentant in sin, but the discipline in this case is being put out of the assembly. Treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. That refers to, again, that level of disassociation, like Paul said, not even to eat with such a one. It doesn't mean we hate this person, 
But we just can't share that fellowship with them anymore because then we would be sharing that reproach and basically accepting that reproach on Christ's name. And for the sake of Christ's name in the church, we, we can't do that. But this person becomes to us the mission field all over again. This is the person we now will treat as the mission field. We're going to continue to call them to repentance and love and share the gospel with them. But this judgment, this discipline, it's not some hammer to be wieldly or loosely wielded and brought down on, on any believer who falls into sin. No, this is a careful and discerning judgment that, that is meant to keep the church pure and it's refused for those who just refuse, or rather it's reserved for those who just outright refuse to submit to Christ and repent. The world may label this as, be, as being judgmental, and to many churches, it, it's not popular, so they, they don't do this anymore, but this comes on Christ's own authority. This is a, a type of judgment the church must exercise for his name's sake. Now, it still needs a little bit more clarification, so a few more here. Number three, this judgment, now again, judgment within, this judgment pertains to doctrinal and moral issues. You'll see where I'm going with this, but number three, this judgment pertains to doctrinal and moral issues. Now, people love to quote Matthew 7, 1 and say the church shouldn't judge anyone for anything. Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And Paul Washer likes to respond when people use that verse. He says, do not take scripture out of context so that you will not be like Satan. <laughs> it's stinging, but it's, it's true. In that passage where Jesus said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. He's not forbidding the church from all types of judgment. In fact, just a few verses later in verse 6, of Matthew 7, Jesus says this. He says, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And he's not talking about animals here. He's talking about people. And clearly this involves making some judgment calls. His point is like some people, they're actually not sheep. They're more like dogs or pigs. Sounds kind of judgmental. Others are outright wolves, which is what he says later, the same chapter, verse 15. He says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. We are to judge based on their fruits. And so this involves a judgment call. The church is called to be doctrinally discerning, to separate truth from error, and that involves guarding against false teachers, wolves and sheep's clothing. The church has been entrusted with the treasure of the gospel. And we're to hold on to that treasure. We're to guard that treasure with a, a loving but strict judgment, especially when it comes to the truth. The same goes for moral issues. God has revealed a standard not just for truth and doctrine, but also for life and practice. And right and wrong behavior is, is laid out in his word, and the church is told to hold this line. And as we said, scripture itself judges sin as sin. It just calls it like it is. Immorality, impurity, anger, adultery, pride, theft, you know, the list goes on. The church must judge the unrepentant sinner according to scripture's definition. 
You know, we don't have the option of letting the world redefine morality so that we can be more loving and inclusive. God defines love. He sets the standard. And the most loving thing we can do for God is to just live and represent his standard. And so put together, the church must exercise judgment within doctrinally and morally. That the church might be a pure and holy witness of the Lord. Did not Paul rebuke the Galatians for tolerating falsehood? And didn't he rebuke the Colossians, or rather the Corinthians, for tolerating immorality? Those were right and righteous judgments. They didn't come from a place of self-righteousness or selfish ambition. They they came from a place of love. Love for the Lord, love for the church. And we need to do the same. This is out of a greater love for, for Christ's name and of the holiness of his bride that we must exercise this type of discernment and judgment within. But there is a line. There is a line. Point number four. This judgment does not pertain to preference and appearance issues. We're still talking about judgment in the church. The church must judge believers. It only refers to unrepentant sinners. This judgment does pertain to doctrine and moral issues. But point number four, it does not pertain to preference and appearance issues. This is a needed clarification because we can stand on the authority of God's word and and call sinners to repent for doctrinal or moral error. But that does not work for issues of preference and appearance. And to the contrary, this is where scripture outright forbids us from judging one another. When it comes to personal preferences, personal conviction, Christian liberties, we are not to judge one another, but show tolerance for one another in love. Paul made this point crystal clear in Romans 14. So you can flip over to Romans 14 if you like. You know, one big issue that was causing conflict in the Roman church way back then, do you know what it was? Vegetarianism. Vegetarianism. Some came to believe that eating meat was unrighteous, ungodly. Others understood their liberty in Christ, that they were free to eat all things with thanksgiving so they could eat meat. It's not a sin. But both of these sides were judging one another. The vegetarians judged the meat eaters. This is all within the church, by the way. The vegetarians judged the meat eaters as as unrighteous. They were doing that which was wrong. The meat eaters, they knew their liberty. They knew they were doing no wrong. But they held in contempt the vegetarians for judging them. So both sides were judging one another. And Paul rebukes them both. Let's read Romans 14. Look at verses 1 through through 4, rather. Romans 14, 1. He says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he, will, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, here Paul is not talking about an issue of doctrine or morality. 
but preference and liberty. And the Christian is free to eat or not to eat. Let one's conscience decide. But, you know, apart from the command of the Lord, you can't judge a fellow believer in the church and convict them of wrongdoing. If you can't stand on a chapter and a verse, you have no place to make a judgment. That's the essence of legalism. You know, if the weaker brother really is wrong, or if the stronger brother is taking his liberty too far, God will judge. God will discipline within the church. As Paul says down in verse 10 of Romans 14, he says, we're all going to stand in front of the judgment scene of Christ. You know, we all give an account. You can appeal to your brother. You can challenge the conscience of your brother, but you cannot judge your brother over these issues. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. So you see, he's not talking about doctrinal judgment or moral. He's talking about preference, liberty, conscience issues. And there, we refrain from judgment. We're, we're going to show tolerance and love. Like Rod said, we're, we're going to defer out of love and unity. This also applies to judgment based on appearance. Jesus said, John seven twenty four. he says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. This really echoes what we learned back in James 2, where the church was judging and holding in contempt the person who walked in dressed in rags, they were obviously poor, while they were showing favor to the rich person. That is an unrighteous judgment. God does not look at appearance. He looks at the heart. We too must judge based on the heart. What that means is if you can't see someone's heart, just refrain from all judgment because you don't know. Lest you fall into sin yourself. And so these are very important caveats where the church is to judge. When it comes to doctrine, yeah. When it comes to morality, right living, yes. But when it comes to preference, liberty, conscience issues, no. The church must exercise judgment within, but can only go as far as scripture. Otherwise, the steep decline into legalism will begin. Well, let's finish up and wrap this whole thing up with one last point here. This is number five. When it comes to judgment within the church, this judgment must not be hypocritical, but merciful. This judgment must not be hypocritical, but merciful. I think once more to Matthew 7, that's where Jesus said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. When you actually look at that in the context, you find that he's talking about hypocritical judgment. The true judgment always starts with self. Remember the Pharisees, though, they were experts at ignoring their own sin and vices while constantly judging others for their sins. Theirs was judgment or judgmentalism done and just total self-righteousness. And that's the type of prideful judgment that the Lord hates. And that's really what's behind his words here. Let me read for you Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Jesus says, Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly 
to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You notice at the end there, we're still needed to help our brother take the speck out of his eye. Right? We're called to help one another see clearly, to grow, to overcome sin. That's a good thing. But his point is, you're disqualified from doing that until you judge yourself and you take the sin out of your own life. You, if you're blinded by your own sin, you cannot see clearly to help someone else deal with their sin. You, you start with you first. And that's his point. Judgment must begin with you. Don't be the hypocrite. Have you ever, have you ever caught your spouse lying to you? Even something like really small and inconsequential, but maybe you got enraged and you wanted to bring down the hammer on them, but just stop and ask, like, have you, have you ever lied to them? Even something really small and inconsequential? Then just, just judge yourself first. Just make sure you're judging yourself first. And you judge yourself often. It must begin with us. Then and only then will you be able to help others see clearly. And furthermore, you know, the, the beauty of judging yourself first for your own sins and shortcomings is it's going to lead you to deal with people mercifully. Because you know, as you judge yourself, well, you're a sinner too. You fall short in many ways. And the time may come where you need to help someone see their sin, but that's going to humble you and you realize, well, I'm going to deal with this person mercifully because that's how I would want them to deal with me when it's my turn. And scripture even commands us to do that. Galatians 6.1, it says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. You know, a spirit of love and grace and gentleness should just overwhelm our judgments, not harsh condemnation. It's not our place to dole out wrath. We have no wrath to give. It's not our place. The believer, his wrath has been paid for by Christ. It's not, it's not what we're talking about here. We've received mercy, and for us, well, we are to show mercy as well. Even in our judgments, we must show mercy. This is what judgment looks like in the church. It has as its subject, sin. It has as its motive, love. It has as its goal, Christ-likeness. And it has as its manner, gentleness. And judgment like this, it's, it's so different from judgment in the world. If this is judgmentalism, give it to me. Because I need this. I need this in my life. You need this. We all need this. This is given to the church for, for the betterment, for the, for the increasing joy as we overcome sin, as we help one another run the race of faith and disentangle from the obstacles of sin. I need help sometimes. You need help sometimes. This is what this judgment is about. And I think it's safe to say the true believer would come to welcome such loving judgment, which has their best interests in mind, which is simply to become more like Christ. That's it. You know, Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. The church is to be a family. And this is not the family you should hate to visit for the holidays. Not the family you dread because you know you're going to be criticized nonstop for everything. This is not the family you avoid because it's filled with people who don't really love you. No, just the opposite. That the church family is to be a family that 
that actually cares for you and your soul and loves you in Christ, like a brother or sister. And look, they love you so much, sometimes they may have to talk to you about sin. But even that is going to be done in love and mercy and compassion and desire to help you grow. That's, that's a good family. That's, that's a family you should want to be around. And so let's, let's be that type of family. Let us judge rightly. And then we can show the world how the love of Christ transforms these, these different sinners into the real family of God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we just praise you this morning for inviting us into your family. Because of our sin, we were cut off. We were far away. We were separate. We were children of wrath. But you sent your son that he might become the firstborn among many brethren to die in our place, to bear our wrath, to suffer our judgment on the cross and rising again to, to call a new people to himself. That, that's good news. We are a people, a family built on that good news. That we are just condemned sinners who have been given life and grace and mercy. And that's what knits us together. You adopted us. You've now made us in Christ brothers and sisters. And I pray we never lose sight of that, Lord. In love, we, we might have to deal with sin in the family. We, we are called to. We must. But even that may be done in, in just real compassion, mercy. Treating others how we've been treated with a desire to restore, to help. This is, this is a good thing. You've given it this, this commission to the church to, to be holy, to be pure, to be built up into Christ's image. May we take that seriously, but never legalistically. Just give us the wisdom we need, the discernment we need to, to, to be careful here and always to judge ourselves first. And may it begin, we know that judgment will begin with the household of God. And that too is only appropriate to so just guard us and guide us when it comes to judging rightly within the body. It's for your sake. We want your name to be magnified by a holy and a pure bride. And so may we judge rightly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.